What is the Holy Spirit up to uh, in the church? What is he forming us? What is he doing uh, to make the name of Jesus uh, glorious and famous? And so this morning, we'll look at some marks of a healthy church. This is God's word. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of the emperor Claudius. So the disciples in Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. How can a man or woman or child keep his way pure? It is by hiding your word in our hearts. Father, my prayer is that you will make us a people who hear, who test, who examine, and who bow. We bow to what your word says about you and who you call us to be. We trust that if you call us to something as believers, you enable us by your grace and by your spirit to live into what you are putting before us. Father, we bow knowing that we will fall short. We have fallen short, and yet we are righteous in your sight. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful to blot. You free us, Lord, to not come under pretense or hiding but to reason with you and to listen and to be changed by you. Would you do that through your servant? Would you forgive your servant's sins? I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Mark Dever uh, has this quote that I found really helpful. God in his goodness and love has not called us to be, has ca- has not called us to be Christians alone. Though we individually sin and are called out of the world individually, We are also called to come together in a local assembly. This assembly in the New Testament is called the church. Of course, just as there are no perfect Christians in this life, so there are no perfect churches. Even the best churches fall short. Nevertheless, any church can be healthier than what it is. In our own lives, we never see complete victory over sin, but as true children of God, we do not therefore give up the struggle. Churches must not give up the struggle either. Christians, particularly pastors and church leaders, desire and labor to see more healthier churches. 
What I love about that quote is that Dever is dealing with the tension. First and foremost, he starts on the level of humans who've been reconciled to God. And he says, look, if you've been redeemed and justified in the sight of God, you presently stand beautiful in God's sight. You presently stand righteous in God's sight. And there is indwelling sin that corrupts. And you won't be perfect until we are restored in glory. In the same way, when you take imperfect sinners and put imperfect sinners in a church, the church will be imperfect. But in the same way that you and I fight for sin, we fight for holiness until we are made like Jesus in the future. He says churches to that degree are to long for more health. Redeemer's not perfect because I'm here. And Charles Spurgeon said, it's not perfect because you're here. And when you put us in the same room, in the same fellowship as imperfect creatures, the fellowship itself will be imperfect. However, the imperfection is not an excuse to not pursue more health and more holiness, individually and corporately. And so I think that that's freeing. It's freeing for us as Redeemer to to honor what God is and has been doing in our midst. I look around you and I am so thankful for this body of believers. And at the same time, don't we want to be more healthy, more like Jesus? And so what this passage does for us this morning is I think it lays out healthy marks of a healthy church. And as we approach it, I, I, I want us to start with ourselves. Because I think the tendency is when we talk about church health, we tend to start outward first. What the church does good, what the church does not do good. But I think if we're to let Jesus speak to us, what he would say is, hey, let's worry about ourselves first and then other people. And so as we approach the passage, I I want us all to to approach it through this lens of, am I a healthy Christian? And are there things in this passage that God is calling me to individually? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that if God conforms us as individuals to the image of Jesus, then what God is going to simultaneously be doing is making our fellowship more healthy. Right? So what are some marks? Here's the first mark I want us to look at this morning. Impartial evangelism done by the laity. All right, what's the laity, Pastor L? It's just a fancy word for non-pastors, non-leaders in the church, people who perhaps sit in the pew that I think you can make a case that what you see in this passage is impartial evangelism done by regular church people. Now, this section is important. You'll notice that the name Stephen is there. If you've been tracking with us in the book of Acts, the last time we heard Stephen's name was back in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Back in Acts 7 and 8, Stephen is killed. He's martyred for preaching the good news, and the apostle Saul was there. He was not an apostle then. He was a rebel. And he was there and he gave license for it. 
And then what, what Luke does as he was writing Acts is he, he says that, hey, when Stephen was killed, persecution set out in Jerusalem. And because of that, the, the Christians fled. They fled into other parts of Judea and they fled north in Samaria. And then here's what Luke does in, 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 Luke cha- in Acts chapter 8. He says, okay, Philip was the one who went to Samaria. And then Philip went down to uh, share the good news with the Ethiopian eunuch. And so what, what, Luke, what Luke does in Acts Eight is to give us the ministry of Philip. Then he skips over to the ministry of Saul, the one who had persecuted Stephen in Acts 8, is then converted in Acts 9, and then he himself was about to be persecuted, so he flees up to Tarsus, and then Luke says, okay, what about Peter? Peter, one of the disciples, has a ministry, the first ministry to Gentiles in mass, and then Luke comes back to Stephen. The Stephen that I talked about back in Acts chapter 8 What you see happening in Acts chapter 11, it's on account of Stephen. In other words, Stephen is dead. And yet, because Stephen was martyred, what we're reading right here is sort of the, that's the impetus for it. And so what Luke is telling us is that not all the people fleeing persecution went to Judea or Samaria. Some went further north into Antioch and into Phoenicia and into Cyprus. Here's a map I want to show you guys just to orient it geographically. All right, so here's Cyprus, right there, green light. This is Jerusalem. Samaria is somewhere right here. That's Cyrene. That's Antioch. That's Tarsus. All of these places are at play in our passage. And so when the persecution set out, they went north. Now, Phoenicia is this region here. It's sprinkled with a tons of little cities. And it's important because the Phoenician people used to control all the ports around the Mediterranean Sea. And then they were overtaken by the Romans in 62 BC. But this part of the world was still called Phoenicia. So it's not a city, it's a region. Now, why, thank you so much. Now, why would they flee up north to Antioch? Tim Keller says that Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and behind Alexandria. 300 to 500,000 people lived there. It was full of Jews and Greeks and Romans and Asians and Africans. The city officials there encouraged immigration and offered Jews full citizenship. N.T. Wright says Antioch would have been like Grand Central Station in New York. Half the people who traveled anywhere would eventually find themselves in Antioch. Those looking for work could find work in Antioch. It was a leading city of fishing and textiles. It was even considered the breadbasket of that region for crops grew well there. So it makes sense that if you're fleeing persecution from Jerusalem, that you go to a big city and you relocate your family for greener pastures. And that's what they did, they fled. Now, there's a problem that as these Jews fled persecution, some of them, look at verse 19, spoke the word to no one except Jews. But look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking non-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, let me get that map one more time. 
This is Cyrene. This is northern Africa. And that is Cyprus. And so men, and it could be men and women from these two cities in that island, when they made it there, they were different. Thank you. That's enough. When they made it there, they were different. They were, lot, they were not like the majority of the Jews who fled persecution. The majority of them only spoke the good news to other Jews. But those mighty men of Cyrene and mighty men and women of Cyprus, they went in there and they were impartial. In other words, look at what the text says. It says that they, when they went, spoke also to the Hellenists. Also. Not either or, but both and. And notice the next passage. And the hand of the Lord was on them. Who's the them? It's on them who preach in the gospel to anybody indiscriminately. The hand of God is on them as they go. Now here's the, the heart. Here's, here's the beautiful thing. Do you know what kind of company they're in? Where do you read in scripture where we're told the hand of God was on them? You could say the hand of God was on Moses and it was against Pharaoh. You could say the hand of God was on Joshua and it was against the inhabitants of the earth. The Bible says the hand of God was on Elijah. The Bible says the hand of God was on Ezekiel. When Ezekiel saw the dry bones and saw the vision of the new temple, it was the hand of God upon him. The hand of God was on John the Baptist when John the Baptist was preaching the good news. And all of a sudden, when you get to Acts chapter 11, the hand of God is on them? Now, here's why it ought to be surprising. This section is full of names, important people, and titles. Barnabas is sent from the apostles in Jerusalem. He kind of important, y'all. Saul is kind of important, y'all. Who did they put the, 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 the collection that they sent to Jerusalem Paul, Saul, and Barnabas put it in the hands of the elders in Jerusalem. They're kind of important, y'all. What about Agabus? We're told that he's a prophet. This dude show up in Antioch, and he didn't foreseen the future. He says, hey, let me let y'all in on something. It's going to be a famine, right? They're all important people. And did you notice? We don't even know their names. It's just some of these men from Cyprus, some of these women from Cyrene, the hand of God is on them. What's going on? This is the new, the new, the new covenant. God says there was an economy. When I raised up a mighty deliverer like Moses, and my hand was in him. And there was a time when I raised up a mighty deliverer like Joshua, and my hand was on him. There was a time when Ezekiel and Elijah and Ezra, these people who do these big things for God, who carry this big weight in the Bible, and the hand of God is on them. But the new covenant? I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young people and your old people. Your women and your men, they're going to see dreams and they're going to prophesy. In other words, it's not relegated to a select few. What God is doing now, now that Christ has come, 
Peter says, we're all the royal race. We're all the royal priesthood. We're all his holy nation. In other words, God's blessing is no longer relegated to a select few who are apostles or prophets or kings. Jesus says, you're all my kings. You're all my priests. You're all my prophets because I'm pouring my spirit out on all of y'all in the same measure that you see here. And what happened when the hand of God was on them? Look at verse 21. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is an important mark of a healthy church. It's when we believe that the hand of God to bless and gift and empower his people is not relegated to me or your deacons or just your elders or just your men or just your older people. That what God is doing is gifting and blessing the whole crew. Now, I quoted this song a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to do it, a little section of it again. It's from one of my favorite hip-hop artists. His name is The Truth. Now, track with me. Here's what he says. Then you came to the rescue, and that was the best news. It took real long, but that was a chess move. You wasn't trying to stall like restrooms. No, you're wiser than us all. We're reminded that you're sovereign. It was all on schedule. You brought light into the dark when you died on the cross, but that was just a flesh wound because death couldn't hold you. So you rose up with all power in your right hand. Uh, you left gifts for the whole crew and you overloaded us with power that we might stand. That was your precise plan. You made us all shine bright like lights on a nightstand. And for the rest of our lifespan, you'll restore us back to the image of Christ. Yeah. You hear what he's saying? When God ascended, when Jesus ascended, he just didn't give gifts to a select few. He says, you gave gifts to the whole crew. The whole crew. The whole crew. If you name the name of Jesus, he's gifted you to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you from darkness into his light. That is not just something that the clergy do. These are regular believers talking about Jesus and they're going and then they're coming and they're working they're eating, they're playing, they're shopping. They're just indiscriminately not respecting people, but respecting King Jesus. And they're opening their mouths and nursing homes and classrooms and the hospital at the grocery store. They're opening their mouths have y'all thought about it that when we gather here, we're gathered as one? But then here's what God does when we scatter. We're in the hands of God. And what God does is he scatters us across this tri-county area. Some of y'all work in Port Gibson. And some of y'all work in New Orleans. 
Some of y'all work in Madison. Some of y'all work in Byram. And that is by design. God has providentially scattered his people across this area. And what would it look like as we scattered to talk about Jesus and our going and our coming? How do we practically do this when someone is having a hard time? Just pray with them. Right there. Here's a sweatshirt that I wear. And on it is Jesus is God. And I dare you to tell me otherwise. And I I got two of them. And the last time I wore this shirt, I got to share the gospel at Wingstop on Lake Harbor. Because somebody's like, what you mean Jesus is God? Well, I'm glad we can talk about it. Sometimes I wear it and I forget that this is on there. I'm, I, I just pick up the red sweatshirt and all of a sudden somebody sees it. I just keep looking and keep looking. Look, this is a conversation starter. Look, we got these cars right here. And these cars, they're, they're so simple. Just leave them on your table when you're having coffee. Or slide it across to someone who's having a hard day. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to be charismatic or an extrovert to be human and to empathize and to listen and to speak. When someone is going through grief because they've lost a spouse or buried a friend, you know what it's like to lose. You know how God met you in that place? What would it look like to just say, hey, I know it's hard. I know how you feel. Let me walk with you. Let me tell you how Jesus met me in this place. You can do good work and work wholeheartedly unto the Lord and not to men and not gossip. And do your work with excellence. And when people ask you, why and how what is it that's different you give an answer and don't assume that just because someone doesn't look like they want to listen that they're not eager andre 3000 says is every dude with dreadlocks for the fall is every dude with gold teeth for the cause he says no so don't get caught up in appearance You hear that? When you see a dude with dreads and gold teeth, don't think he's just a thug and don't want to listen. This is what they were doing. They were indiscriminate. How are churches strengthened when we do this? We pray for non-believers. We get the joy of seeing people being snatched from death to life. We get to see more worshipers of Jesus. We get to hand the baton to those coming after us that they might run their race. We get to be like Stephen who died three chapters ago. And because of his faithfulness three chapters ago, the gospel is still going and going and going and going. I think this is a mark of a healthy church. 
Second, this is a long point, so track with me. The the point itself is long, right? I'm going to say it two times for you. Intentional enfolding into a learning community led by those further along in the faith to foster maturity and endurance. Intentional enfolding into a learning community led by those further along in the faith to foster maturity and endurance. I'm getting this in verses 21 through 26. There's some irony going on in this section that it says the hand of God was on them and this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so the apostles did what they've been doing all the time in Acts. Whenever the gospel breaks out in Samaria or over in uh, where Cornelius is, that they're always investigating, all right, is this legitimate? Is this real? And so that's what they do here. Upon hearing this, that the hand of God was at work, it made it to their ears. And so they dispatched someone. They dispatched someone named Barnabas. Now, why would they dispatch Barnabas of all people? First, look at the passage. It actually says he was a good man. Verse 24, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So that's the reason. But I think another reason they use Barnabas is because Barnabas in Acts chapter four, guess where he's from, y'all? He's from Cyprus. That island I showed you up near where they were going, that's Barnabas' hometown. And Barnabas was the one who mediated the tension between Saul. Remember when Saul got converted and he was trying to go to Jerusalem and they were scared of him? Like, no, you stay away. It was Barnabas who came in as a mediator and bridged that gap. And so what they do, they send Barnabas up. Barnabas, them, your people's up there. You go up there and you check this out. And when Barnabas got up there, it says that he was overjoyed. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He was excited. This was the real deal. But then there was an exhortation. Look at verse 23. What was the exhortation? That you all will remain faithful. That you will remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This sounds a lot like Paul in Acts 15 when he comes back to Antioch, same city. You know what Paul says in Acts 15? It says he returned to Antioch to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And so Barnabas is like, man, I want y'all to remain. I'm excited, but I want you to remain. Paul comes back. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to continue. Now, why? Why would they both put the emphasis on remaining, abiding, and continuing, and not just coming to faith, but staying there and being rooted and maturing and growing up? Why would that be an emphasis of both of those men? It's because of what Paul says in Acts 14. He says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Think, imagine I'm holding a big um, basket, and on the basket is the word tribulations. What Paul is saying is for us to make it home, we will have to endure everything in this basket, and there is no way around it. Tribulations is a catchphrase for calamity, hardship. It's it, It's a big word that can encompass any and all things that can trip us up and cause us to not finish. 
And so imagine this big old box and you were to pull out, yeah, you might get cancer. And that's a tribulation you got to walk through to get home. Yeah, you might lose your job. And that's going to be painful. And that's a tribulation you got to walk through. And you might bury a spouse. And that's a tribulation. And you got to walk through it. And you might lose your job when they downsize. And that's a tribulation. And you got to walk through it. And your kids may crush your heart. And that's a tribulation. And you got to walk through it. And you might catch coronavirus. And that's a tribulation. And you got to walk through it. You might get skipped for a raise, and that's a tribulation, and you got to walk through it. And it's not just the bad things that's in that lump. It's good things. I'm convinced that it's not always the bad things that trip us up. Sometimes it's the good things. It's when you get the massive increase in salary, and that becomes a tribulation because you got to steward it, and you got to watch your heart. Sometimes it's when you get what your heart wants, and your temptation is to trust in what you have and not the God who gave it, and that's a tribulation that you got to walk through. And here is what they're both saying. They're both saying being a believer is not a cakewalk. In other words, just because you enter into the kingdom, you aren't safe in the sense that you can't struggle and be tripped up. Now, here's an example. There was a man named Demas. If you read Colossians, when Paul's writing to that church, Demas with Paul sends his greeting. When Paul writes Philemon, Demas with Paul sends his greeting. But by the time you get to 2 Timothy, you know what Paul says about Demas? In love with this present world, he deserted me. Whoa. But he started really good. And by the time Paul's life is about to end, Demas ain't good. And then Paul pins these words Me, I'm ready. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished, not started. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not just me, all of those who are awaiting his appearing. You think Paul knows what he's talking about? About not just coming to faith, but enduring and keeping and fighting and finishing well. Now, here's the question, the million dollar question of the passage. If Paul and Barnabas are both warning them to continue and to remain What do they do to enable them to continue and to remain? You know what they do, y'all? This is Barnabas, full of the Spirit. Look right there in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's what you ought to underline. 
The apostolic concern is that they won't mature, they won't stand, they won't finish. Well, what do the apostles do? Barnabas leaves, go find Saul. Saul, we got to relocate ourselves to Antioch. And for a whole year, what did they do? They taught them. They taught them. We believe that seven to nine years has elapsed. The last time we heard about Saul was in Acts 8. When you get to Acts 11, nine years have elapsed. That's nine years for Barnabas to mature in the faith. Nine years to grow in grace. Nine years to walk with Jesus. It's nine years for Saul to walk with Jesus. Nine years to grow. And what do they do? They stop everything they're doing to relocate to Antioch. To teach. To teach. It is here that Christians first got the name Christian. And the way that this is written, this does not read as if they named themselves Christians. They were called Christians by the outside world because of their habits and priorities. And so imagine being a non-Christian, watching Christians go out into the world and share the good news. Imagine being a non-Christian and watching pastors relocate themselves to your city to nurture you and to teach you. This is where they got the name Christian, through these practices. I think what the Holy Spirit is saying, you guys, this is how we endure and remain steadfast. It's through enfolding ourselves into a covenant community where this is taught week in and week out that they needed to be in a proximate, consistent, in it for the long haul, in-person, learning, worshiping community where we're submitting ourselves to God's word. This is why we do this week in and week out. This is why our growth group leaders open their homes and teach God's word. This is why our women unpack God's word. This is why your children will go to Sunday school and will be taught the word. This is why we open the word week in, week out. Look, y'all, the week that we stop prioritizing this, we're in a bad place. And if I don't preach the word to you, you fire me. And I mean that. This is how God has designed us to stand and to endure it's to be in community where the word of God is taught 
week in and week out. And God shows up. God changes us. God increases our affections for him. He, he stabilizes us when the world around us is unstable. That when the clouds of life come in and they, they hide his character and his goodness, it's the teaching of the word that lets the character of God come back. That when we start to doubt who he is in Jesus and what he's done for us, it's the teaching of the word that breaks in and softens our heart. If we stop doing this, we are in trouble. And this is a warning that if we find ourselves fracturing and splintering and ignoring and not valuing what it means to gather as God's covenant people under the lordship of Jesus, where we rehearse and rehearse and rehearse the good news, that if we find ourselves moving away, then here is what I can promise you, and this ain't me talking. This is the Bible saying, you will not finish. That God has inextricably tied our perseverance to the end to our communion with the saints where we value the word of God. This is another mark. A church that prioritizes and enfolds people into a learning community. I'm going to finish with this last quick point. What's the third mark? It's widespread generosity and sacrifice for all. Remember those tribulations I talked to you about that we have to walk through? Guess what? You get one in this passage. This prophet named Agabus comes up from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he prophesies by the Holy Spirit, hey, yo, it's going to be a famine in a couple years, just like it was in Exodus when they saw the famine coming. This feels like the same thing. And, and what do these saints do? They all determine, every one of them, according to their own ability, that they would send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did it by sending it to the elders in Judea by Barnabas and Saul. Those with little gave out of their poverty. Those with means gave out of their wealth. But all did something. This is the fifth time in the book of Acts that possessions and poverty and the saints being generous comes up. And this young little church in Antioch, full of Jews and Gentiles, they don't miss a beat. The prophet tells them a famine is coming and it's going to afflict the people down south. And so they all to the man, to the child, to the woman, they all as they had it were generous. And it's not just that they were generous. Man, when you read this, here's a bookend, right? Look at 1120. They did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now turn over to chapter 12, the end of chapter 12. Look at 1225. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing, them, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, what's happening in the middle? Y'all know what happened in the middle? James, the brother of John, has been beheaded. Peter is imprisoned. That's the climate that Saul and Barnabas 
walk into to deliver this gift. They're killing folk, especially Christians in Jerusalem. And Saul and Barnabas says, bring it on. We'll walk into the mouth of the lion. Do you see the sacrifice that's happening? The people are generous. That Saul and Barnabas are bold and courageous, not fearing persecution. Now, here's the question. How does this happen? I think it happened during that year of teaching. Their teaching touched on stewardship. Their teaching touched on how connected we are to the body, regardless of geography or ethnicity. Their teaching touched on being accountable to what we have. Their teaching touched on loving neighbor as we love self. So much so that when needs arose down there, they sent it. I want to close with this. How are we motivated to be generous and sacrificial? What motivates us to love this teaching covenant community? What compels us to share the good news indiscriminately? That pattern that you see, doesn't this sound like the life of Jesus? When he came, did he not announce the good news to the poor and to the rich? Was he not around tax collectors and Pharisees and priests and Sadducees? Was he not around prostitutes and drunkards and gluttons? That what you see being formed in them, it's reflecting him and how he lived his life. And this premium on this covenant community where learning and teaching is central? Does Luke not tell us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor? Does the author of Hebrews not tell us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? That Jesus himself is a learner. And does, the, 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 does Luke not tell us that he's the rabbi, he's a teacher? And do the Gospels not tell us that if you wanted to find Jesus, you would find him with his 12 in a covenant learning community? And do we not know about Jesus, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that he was rich and for our sake he became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich? This generosity, Jesus says, you don't take my life, I lay it down because the Father will raise me up. In other words, what you're seeing, I think, in this section is the body of Christ being cruciformed. They're starting to look more like Jesus because God's Spirit is inside of them and the Holy Spirit wants to pardon their sin and conform them to the image of their Redeemer. How do we grow in these things, Redeemer? It's 
by being with Jesus and resting in his work and not fighting his spirit and making much of salvation and asking him, Lord, give me courage, give me wisdom, make me unselfish like you, give me opportunities, Lord, that we do this through our union with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we acknowledge, Lord, that we fall short. We're often partial. We're skittish. We run from the body, and we're selfish. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for atoning for our sins. You've given us your spirit. Holy Spirit, make us new. Make us courageous. Make us willing vessels to be used by the King to proclaim your excellencies. Father, make us view this body as a family, a family in which we can learn and grow together, that we might persevere until the end. And Lord, I do pray for generosity. I thank you for the generosity of these saints here, and I pray that we would even grow in this more and more. Do this by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.